Coming to you pre-recorded from a cramped closet in Las Vegas, Nevada, and a New York City apartment far too close to the street. It's your favorite millennials with too much time on their hands. Welcome to the Red Team Reviews Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Red Team Reviews Podcast. I am the son of man, TJ Patrick, joined as always by... Uh, the Roomba with a knife strapped to it, Trevor Catalano. Oh. <laughs> All right. All right. That genuinely took me off guard. Okay. Yeah, no, I, that's the whole idea of the bit, is that I'm going to get better at it now. They're not going to be human. Um, especially, after the, especially after the pasta robot, um, I, I have found a new false idol, um, and it is, it is a Roomba with a knife strapped to it. You see, mine was all, like, nice and, like, tied to the episode, and yours was just like, <laughs> you're just like, nope. That's how uh, I get you. So, <laughs> so today, uh, yes, uh, if you haven't been able to tell either by that reference or by the title of this podcast, if you can see the title somehow, uh, we are going to be talking about Tarzan, we are going to be talking about Brick, Two of uh, our movies that we said defined us in the last uh, episode of the Red Team Reviews podcast, which hopefully you've listened to, uh, and it's up there if you want to listen to it, uh, <laughs> but uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to review both movies, uh, two movies that are very near and dear to us, so we're going to see how objective we can be. Uh, does Trevor secretly hate Ryan Johnson? Find out uh, in our review of both Brick and Tarzan. Spoiler Objectivity alert. No, is a lie. Us but... <laughs> Neither of us hate Ryan Johnson. Um, <laughs> the energy it takes uh, to also... hate a filmmaker uh, is reserved for extreme racists and pedophiles. True. Um so we are going to talk about those two movies. We are going to cap off the episode with a discussion about the phenomenon between uh, regual, uh, regual. Why wow, I, I see what my brain did there. Regular casual viewers <laughs> and critics, and we're going to talk about why there is this weird disconnect between you know a mainstream audience and critics. Why there's so much you know trust issues there. Uh, and we're going to talk about all that, but first, uh, we need to address, last episode we addressed, uh, the elephant in the room of the coronavirus pandemic very briefly. We didn't linger on it too much because, you know, what really is there to say? However, you today all know we're going it's there. To... There's no awareness. <laughs> this is not, uh, you know, this is not, uh, you know, a march for breast cancer. We, we know. Like, it's literally in the air. Um... <laughs> that's that's how I cope. I make jokes. Don't mind me. Um, but uh, today we are going to address the second big elephant in the room for t uh, 2020, which is the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, which has really resurfaced. It never really went away, but it's yeah. come back into the mainstream because of very notable acts of police brutality and just blatant racism and injustice that has still gone unanswered, mm -hmm. largely. I mean, still has very much gone unaddressed by the government, government officials, both big and local, 
and yeah, Brianna Taylor's Brianna, Brianna Taylor's murder. One of them just got fired, like that, and, and just fired. And so that's you know, in some some victories are are there, but others are just so so far away. Right to to peel back the curtain a little bit on this podcast, we started recording, I think officially in about end of March or around April. Mm-hmm. And we originally had recorded this episode in June. It had to be because this yeah. was all now becoming very much a thing. It exploded literally like on my birthday. Mm-hmm. So I, I know very much that the original beginning of this podcast episode and this rest of the uh, episode is set in June. We're recording this on se- in September. We're recording this in September and we're still getting just the bare minimum of action from our elected officials and it is disgusting. It is deplorable. It is infuriating as a black man myself and I think the worst thing of all is that I'm not even surprised. I'm genuinely just not even disappointed. I'm just like, I can't believe that my morbid and cynical mindset has been proven very correct by the people in power. And, you know, there a lot has been said over the years, over the countless years about like, they don't care about black people and they, they don't care about us. They'll forget us in a, in an instant. And it's heartbreaking that it's not a surprise to see that proven true. It's act- it's unsettling. It makes me and so many others just sick to our stomachs. And the fact that it's it's still an issue, current year argument, in 2020, we're still dealing with this. And people are still stubborn. The fact that people can watch footage, unsettling, deeply disturbing, and just brain-melting footage of people getting shot and killed in the street by police. The people that are here to serve and protect all of us, not just some of us. And people have the nerve, the gall, to argue, to quibble about semantics, about word choice, about tone, to rebut us with all lives matter, blue lives matter, is just... And the fact that this isn't even unique to 2020, that this was happening years ago, too. And the fact that... This is just an on this is just a new branch of an issue that's happened that's been going on from the very inception of this country. Something has to give at some point. And that there are so many reasons why we are cuz that's the whole point of this little bit here is just for us to officially say for the record that we stand with Black Lives Matter. We completely support the movement and 
that obviously we believe in what they stand for, which is just, just not even equality, but just human decency. To not want to be killed in your bed while you're sleeping and having done nothing wrong. That's what we're here to say, and it's baffling that we have to say it. It's baffling and mortifying that people hear that and their instinct is to argue. Because the fact of the matter is that if you see or hear or know of the fact that somebody has died, no, scratch that, that somebody has been murdered, and your first instinct is not sympathy, is not empathy, but to somehow backpedal and go, whoa, 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 well, now we don't have all the information. Well, what did they do? Well, how did they deserve it? How did they? Well, they did this one thing, which means that, you know, the reaction was justified. None. None of it is acceptable. None of it is acceptable. The justifications, the passive nature, the straight up just acceptance that, no, yeah, I'm okay with black people being randomly killed for no reason. Sure. That's why all of the protests are happening. That's why we won't shut up about it. And that's why we're here right now at the beginning of a very silly and goofy and lighthearted podcast taking a drastic shift in tone on our second ever episode to say that we support this because it matters. Because we matter. And that is at least my official statement, but I know Trev. And (laughs) Trev is also with me on this. And honestly... A lot of it is just, it's just infuriating and heartbreaking and just, it's, it breaks you a little bit. It breaks your morale a little bit more and a little bit more. And it's no secret. You can ask almost any black person. They've had to learn about this since the day they were born, that it's going to be harder, that you're going to have to be strong, that you're going to have to be defiant, that you can't be fragile, that you have to know how to pick yourself up that you have to be a mountain. You have to plant yourself like a tree and just dig your roots in. Because it's years like 2020. It's months like June 2020. It's moments like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and all the countless others that stand to just completely shatter you, that you can't let it. And we're just here trying to do the very bare minimum that we can as, again, a very light and silly and goofy podcast, just two friends that wanted to talk about movies and shows and do something productive but we all we're also here as human beings and as human beings we support black lives matter 
Thanks for that, TJ. Um, my my statement really, um, just as me a person, uh, I'm I'm the white person of the duo. Um, I spent a lot of my time uh, reading and working on being not just not racist because that's not enough. Um, being anti-racist, and so um, especially if you're a you know a white person, especially if you're a white person that I know and love, listening to this podcast, um, you know I am open to I am open to share my resources and share my my learning experience um, because the truth is it's embedded in all of us. We grew up in it the same way black people did. Um, we just got taught the other side of the coin. Um, we got taught that uh, it's not appropriate to talk about race and not. Uh, and for those who do are instigators, we get taught that uh, it's better to um, uphold the the normalcy of of white people uh, being good people at heart um, than to actually question our own actions. So um, don't shy away from it, um, especially as things die, you know, get farther and farther away from June. Uh, don't turn and look away. Don't stop talking about it. Um, it's important that we are in this fight as well. Um because it's not over. It just changed its face. We didn't solve it back in the 60s. We just decided that it's not okay to talk about and that talking about it made you a bad person. Um, but talking about it doesn't make you a bad person. In fact, it's the only way to get through it. So, um, you know, we have resources. Um, you know, it's it's far past the time, honestly, to <laughs> be sharing all that stuff. Uh, not, not to say that we want to stop talking about it, but, um, you know, there's a million places to find these resources at this point. And so if you're choosing us as our outlet, message us directly. We have no qualms about it. Don't feel embarrassed. We will happily give you all the resources you need. So, yeah, uh, with, with that being addressed, uh, like Trev said, this, you know, we're going to keep talking about it. Uh, know that we both, are with the movement every step of the way. Um, but, you know, we will shift gears here. We'll take a moment uh, and we'll go on with our regularly scheduled programming. But uh, we do honestly believe in this because because it's the right thing. We, we have to. And so though we're going to shift gears to something obviously much more light. And again, recorded in... June. So different context. Uh, the tone is going to shift. It might be a, it might be a bit abrupt. Just give us, you know, bear with us. Uh, but we're just going to take a beat here to let that all sink in and let us just organically move on to the next segment of the show. Uh, thanks for listening. As I said in the intro, uh, we last episode, we listed three films that define us as people. Trevor, if you could refresh our audience's memories. Uh, I chose It's a Wonderful Life, Avengers Infinity War, and Disney's Tarzan. And I chose uh, Hot Fuzz, a relatively new entry for me, Toy Story, which will probably be mentioned many, many, many times on this podcast, and Brick, a little-known 2005, I am tempted to say indie film, uh, and because nobody's ever heard of it. So, obviously, it led to very clear front runners for, okay, well, we should probably talk about these two movies at some point. 
Uh, Toy Story, we're definitely going to talk about Pixar, so that cross that out. Avengers Infinity War, we're obviously going to talk about the MCU. It's just a matter of time. And It's a Wonderful Life is reserved for the Christmas episode, as we did mention last uh, last time. Um, yeah. And I don't know. Hot Fuzz just meh. I, I, we can talk about Hot Edgar Wright films yeah. at a certain point. And you've seen Hot Fuzz. Mm-hmm. I had not yeah, seen Brick. So. That is that is kind of the the pinnacle here. Is that it was oh hey we have to watch something and review something. Uh, you know Trevor hasn't seen Brick. Let's let's do that. Right, right, right. So Trevor has Trevor is going to review Brick, and I will add in my thoughts. But ultimately, it is Trevor's review of Brick. And I hadn't seen Tarzan in a while, but I'm on a kick nowadays of watching old movies that I used to like. And maybe I like them even more. Maybe I hate them now. So it's a little masochistic, really. (laughs) Honestly, I just recognize that as a child, I was not very in tune with what made a good movie. So it's no, but this is just you sitting there going, can I still feel joy? (laughs) Can I do this at all? Isn't that just 2020? (laughs) That's exactly what you're doing. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) Can yeah, I still feel a little joy? bit. <laughs> a little too I saw, uh, I saw, a, I saw a tweet. Sorry for the person who I am not crediting because I don't remember who you are. But uh, somebody said, somebody was saying that wow, Black Mirror really went off with season six, having us experience it instead of watch it. It's fantastic. <laughs> God. <laughs> I saw, I saw one. I forget if it's a tweet because I saw it on Instagram. Uh, somebody like you know putting pictures of like when people stood up their brooms for a second when that was like a thing people were Uh doing the newest viral craze and they were like y'all motherfuckers need to do this again to close whatever portal to hell that you open (laughs) (laughs) you need to do a a pentagram around Donald Trump uh, and send him back into the abyss (laughs) um so yes, uh, he will fade all of the orange or orange from his face, and <laughs> he'll become a real boy once more. We'll get to see what color he really is, and <laughs> add it to our uh, color. It's white. Our color palette, because clearly that color does not exist in the realm of reality. <laughs> yet. Uh, <laughs> it's like just like a pallid, chalky white. He's Palpatine. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> no, Palpatine was way smarter than Donald Trump. <laughs> True, true, true. He's Dooku. Um, <laughs> Dooku also so smarter than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is Jar Jar. Like, let's. <laughs> There's no way Donald Trump could go toe to toe with Yoda. Um, yeah, I mean, come on. Let, if you, let's think about let's think about this for two seconds. Bernie Sanders uh, is Yoda. Is, is yes. <laughs> let's think about Donald Trump and, and Jar Jar for two seconds. Uh, is uh, the laughing laughing stock of where he comes from because New York hates him. Uh, can't string words together in cohesive English. Uh, is constantly finding himself in lucky ass situations where other people make him look good. Uh, like Donald Trump is Jar Jar Binks. Failed <laughs> into probably power. a Sith Lord. <laughs> yeah. All right, but we're gonna keep riffing on this until the end of time if we don't stop this. So. <laughs> So, uh, so now to kill the darlings, um, would you like to start or should I start? I feel like you should start because you're the one going into brick blind, whereas we both know Tarzan. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, I actually find a really interesting link between these shows, these uh, movies um, that I didn't anticipate going in because uh, for anybody who doesn't know Brick, um, you know, uh, I'm going to do a quick summary. Please you know, give do. it about if you want to if you want to if you want to skip ahead about two minutes, um, I should. I'm going to try to time myself um, to see how quickly I can. No, I can no, do this. they'll so, listen. Uh, they'll listen to every word you have three, to say. Two, <laughs> one, go. Okay, so uh, Brick is uh, essentially set in a high school. Uh, Ryan Johnson is once again playing with genre in the same way that he kind of tipped Star Wars on its head and uh, kind of messed with the uh, murder mystery version of Knives Out. Um, it's a noir film, but uh, it's not black and white. It is still in color from 2005, um, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays this kind of high schooler, but still essentially operates and thinks and talks and behaves like a noir private eye. Um, and he has a girlfriend, uh, quote-unquote, girlfriend, a uh, girl he's, you know, more or less attached to, uh, that has gone missing. Yeah, ex-girlfriend uh, who has gone missing. He, he You see her dead body in the very first moments of the film, so you know she dies at some point. Um, through some flashbacks into the present and then to the future, uh, you find out that she had been involved with some uh, high school drug rings, um, and he essentially acts like a private eye going up against the brass, who's actually the vice principal, and he has his, you know, tech guy, um, and all, all these, like, upper-class kids who help the drug dealers, um, and there's all sorts of, like, gangster enforcers, but it's all high school kids. Um, and there are plenty of moments throughout the film where, you know, the mom comes in and pour, pours them orange juice that kind of take you out of it for a second. Um, uh, but meanwhile, they're using so much, like, noir jargon um, that you're really just, like, invested, like, oh my goodness, this is, like, a real noir film. Um and so, essentially, the way the plot goes, he gets involved with the gangsters, they hire him, quote-unquote, uh, you know, to be, uh, actually, I didn't quite understand that part entirely, but they hire him for whatever services as a PI he can kind of uh, give to investigate whether or not there's a mole in the group. Uh, the reason it's called Brick is because there are bricks of heroin um, that get sold off uh, by the kind of kingpin, they call him the pin, um, but one goes missing and comes back tainted, and so the kingpin is trying to essentially investigate why that happened. Um, it's all strung around the murder of this girl, and essentially you find out that um, his head enforcer was kind of skimming off the top uh, and uh, tainted tainted the brick that came back. Um, essentially, this creates a full-on drug war um, within the span of just uh, about 20 minutes um, that a lot of people don't make it out of. Uh, you find out that the killer uh, of the girl, that the girl had been with like multiple different guys across the high school was pregnant at one point, um, and it's all being manipulated by uh, one of the other girls in the story. Honestly, it's so many twists and turns. Uh, the, in fact, I feel bad for making you sit through this because <laughs> uh, you should just go read the Wikipedia summary of the of the plot because it's uh, there were times when I was just like wait shit what did I miss I had to I had to watch this with subtitles a because they speak so quietly absolutely and yeah. b just because I was like wait hold on what why why is he why does he give a shit about that person okay wait what's going on um it was honestly like I enjoyed it but it was actually really hard for me to keep up with at times which yeah and I think a big portion of that uh I do understand uh, and good job on the synopsis, by the way. Um, basically because Ryan Johnson, who I do believe wrote this, he has a tendency to write his films. Um, let's see. Yeah, written by Ryan Johnson. Um, he has, like, I don't know fully if this is adopted slang 
or if he basically made up his own slang. But the film very much has its own language that you really have to keep up with. And, like, this is not a movie that you put on while you're, like, folding laundry or while you're, like, making food and you're kind of, like, glancing at the screen every now and then. This is a movie that, like, you really do have to kind of key in on because there will be certain words and phrases that will take you, like, a second to be like, oh, oh, that's what that means. Okay. Um, so it is, it's not very accessible, I think, is the, probably the biggest barrier for Brick. Um, but what were your thoughts on, I guess, the movie, like, as, as a whole? Uh, as a whole, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed kind of seeing what was going to happen next, but it definitely throws you into scenes where you're like, uh, I don't know why that choice is being made. And then you get to the end of the scene and you go, okay, I think I get it. Um, uh, choice, and it all does get, choice by, the bow does, choice by the, choice by the writer or choice by the actor? Uh, the writer, okay. the writer. Um, and I think that it, it does get tied up in a pretty neat bow at the end. Um, in fact, I actually had a moment where, uh, you, you know, uh, the moment where Laura and, uh, Br- uh Brendan, Brandon, Brendan. Brendan, uh, are, are standing in the, in the football field and, uh, he, and, and he literally says to her something along the lines of like, do you want me to, do you want me to lay it out for you? And I'm just like, well, we do, we would like you to lay it out for us. Cause there are so many relationships. Literally everyone is fucking everyone except for the pin. Nobody's fucking the pin. Uh, but everyone, every, every lady character you, you get introduced to is pretty much sleeping with everybody. Which Um, is pretty, it's pretty par for the course with no, with noir. Oh yeah, totally. And also I loved the homages that you, you took what would normally be this in a noir film and you made it into this in a high school. Mm -hmm. Like, um, how you take the, the DA and it's actually the vice principal, how you take the, the drama girl and she's actually the, the prostitute, um, in the noir film. Like you literally see her in multiple historic, like prostitute costumes, like a geisha makeup and, uh, and like a Chicago esque costume. Um, and she always has some freshman at her feet, uh, doing what we assume is kind of lingus. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you have those characters. You have the rich girl who has a massive house that when her parents are away, she throws a party, who's, like, the socialite, um, who is the femme fatale. Uh, you have, you know, the, the pin is a, is a, is a, you know, slightly crippled kid. They, you see a lot of shots of feet, um, in this, in this movie. Um, and one in particular is that he has, like, one of those, one shoe is taller than the other because he has a, he has a limp. Um, and like the way they unify, uh, Tug, Tug is the enforcer. Um, and he has a, he, I couldn't tell if it was his family or just the kids who hung out with him. And like he wears a white wife beater and a white beanie. And then you see a shot of everyone in his house is wearing wife beaters and white beanies. So it's like, okay, cool. This is that gang. And this gang's aligned with this gang. And so it really does give you those fun moments of like, oh, cool. I actually know these, these tropes. And it's funny how you've taken me out of it by playing with it. And then immediately, because everyone in the movie is taking it so seriously, you glomp right back onto it. Um, it, it is the performances are so wonderfully over the top. Um, 
that it's it's par for the course. You don't sit there going like, "Uh, this is stupid because they're high school kids." Like, no, you, you there's real consequences and real uh, you know, real stakes and real emotions behind it all. Um even if it is over the top and even if it is uh the point that I will kind of make is that um it is definitely a product of 2005 because the toxicity of that masculinity. Holy shit. Which I think was um, cuz I think you're basically zeroing in on uh Tug and Brad, right? Uh, no, even Brendan, uh, even Brendan, even Dode, um, just the possessiveness over these women. Um, the, our main character literally screams at our, our at our murder victim that he loves no one else but her, and and he has to be with her, and and there there's no other options. And while that's still like par for the course in the over the topness of it, just the the implications that this is an ex girlfriend that you're entitled to. Uh, there's a lot of little nicks there that I think as you if you approach it from a more feminist standpoint. Um, None of these boys, they're all young boys who don't understand, like, women and their autonomy at all. Yeah. Beyond beyond what, what forces they exert over their worlds. Um, and that's, like, a huge connecting factor to, to the history of Tarzan that we'll talk about later, is the, the relationship to masculinity in both these films. Um and so that was something that definitely like caught my radar. It's like, a, ah, I see what's going on. It's Joseph Gordon-Levitt in yet another movie where he plays a young man who thinks he's special. Um, <laughs> referencing 500 Days of Summer. Um, and I know Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a smart enough actor to understand that that's what's going on. Maybe not at the young age he was at when he filmed this. But uh, he says that about 500 Days of Summer where it's like, oh, yeah, no, this character is super interesting. But you shouldn't like him. Um, I don't I didn't like any characters at any point, And I was okay with that. Um, I thought it was super interesting to see them kind of go to, go to bat against one another. And I rooted for Brendan, but I didn't necessarily like him. Yeah. I would say that that's, uh, I'd say it's less of a product of 2005 just because like, I think if Ryan Johnson made this movie, nothing about that would change because I think it's a combination of, well, he's a teenager and also, He's like a hearkening back to like the noir days and both of those, both of those for wildly different reasons do have a case of like simultaneously, um, simultaneously kind of propping yourself up as a man to be like, you know, well, this is what I got to do. And, you know, ah, women will only slow me down until I need you. Right, right. But then as a teenager, you're also like, every time you're in a relationship, it's all or nothing. It's always like, you know, you're the only one that I've ever loved. And it's just like, you're 15. (laughs) Of course, (laughs) that's the only person you've ever loved. (laughs) Uh, Romantically, at least. Um, and then, uh, in terms of like the film stylistically with the, the cinematography and everything, there were moments and this might be the, the date. It might be the fact that it's indie enough and Ryan Johnson wasn't really a name back then. Um, but you know, one of the metaphors that I kind of came up with myself with the way the, the, the level of camera work, um, and the choices that were made, um, in like the running sequences and the stunts, um, and the locations and the use of like color balance, uh, was just that like, oh, this actually could have been filmed by high schoolers. Um, and I think that that's actually 
I, I don't know if that was part of Ryan Johnson's like idea behind it, but that definitely showed through to me where it's like, oh yeah, if you had the right equipment in high school, you could definitely make this film. Yeah, I think it's um, it's more like I think it helps the fact that they're all in high school, but I think it's more so just the idea that everything about this movie is just rough around the edges in the best way. Yeah, It's not mm-hmm. supposed to be polished. Like, the thing that I'll always point to first is, like, Tug. Because that's easily a character that you can point at and go, well, he's not really a very good actor, and he's not doing a very good job, and he's very over-the-top, and, you know... But I'm like, but isn't that exactly how you play that character of like oh, yeah. the high, high wound, like testosterone boiling over uh, probably like 18 year old, 19 year old, something like that. Like the only way you play that character authentically is to not put in an Oscar winning performance because that's not what this film is about. And there's just all of that all over the place. I think the film kind of runs the gamut a little bit on like, you know, people like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, the uh, actress, the actress that plays Laura. uh, They're like the really the only two people allowed to act. Everyone else is kind of just like, pretend you're an actual person in this high, you know, this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, uh, this high, high concept world. Um, like nothing. It's it's almost, it's meta in a way. It's like, it's like, okay, play this how a teenager would play this person. Yeah, exactly. Like everyone feels like they're not acting to the point of like, it's like that that classic thing of as an actor that you and I both probably have done at one point or another. It's like, how do you play someone as a good actor who doesn't know how to act? Yeah. It's like, well, if you realistically act as somebody who doesn't know how to act, everyone's going to say it's a bad performance. So you kind exactly. of have to find that weird tightrope. Uh, but whereas we go on the right side, let's say they go on the left side, they actually do act like they don't know how to act. Um, because in the realm of the universe, I think they they're not acting um, like like Megan Good's character um, is probably the best example of that, where it's just like she's quote unquote acting the entire time, but she's not a. Like, the character is not a good actress. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it's very obvious. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely liked the... I liked how ambitious the cinematography was because I actually don't really know if this was an independent movie. Um, Focus Features, I think, uh, I think they're basically... You know, if you're made by Focus Features, I don't think you can really call it an independent movie, but I don't really know. I don't really yeah, know. Yeah, it's, it's like one of those subset production companies in, like, the larger, like, 20th Century Fox or, or something like that. Like, it's one of those. Right. Um, but I did like that a film that definitely had the vibe of, like you said, like, it feels like a bunch of high schoolers could have picked up some pretty standard professional equipment and just done this themselves. But it's like, 
they actually went for it in a way that I really wish a lot more films did. And that tends to be a theme with Ryan Johnson that like, he doesn't leave anything on the table. He really goes for it when he has an idea for something Um, like the recurring garbage bag motif and the fact that like anytime you go down into the pins basement, there's that little establishing shot of the stairs just mm-hmm. to just for that that little extra bit, you know, because you don't need it. It doesn't need to be there, but it's just that little thing for atmosphere. Um, and like you said, in like the running scenes, how kinetic the camera is, and how I noticed this more recent time watching it at what having a little bit of a better eye, you know, there's like a camera shot where Brendan's uh, searching the pin's desk. And, like, he hears a noise and he pops up and the camera, like, is on him and then swings over to look at the door. And it's just, like, the slightest ever Dutch angle. But it's, like, not obvious. It's, like, it's just off center to the point where, like, if you're looking for it, you're going to see it. But if you're not, I think it still gives off the same feeling of, like, oh, shit. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts on the score, the music? I I hadn't I hadn't even put two and two together that far, honestly. For the music? Yeah, I I guess I, I'm I guess what I'm saying right now is I don't recall having thoughts about the music because I can't literally reimagine what the music is in my brain right now. Ah, okay, that's interest. That's interesting. Um, just because I I only say that not to be like, you know, haha, I caught something that you didn't like, no, (laughs) but like, I remember the first time I watched it, the music was one of the things that I was just like, oh, you can tell this is a detective movie. (laughs) Cause there's these little like stings and these little, like, if you've ever played LA Noir, one of the things they do is like, they play little ambient music and it's not like a song, but there's just like these little occasional plinks on the piano and uh, these little horn notes. Uh, But whenever you pass a clue, there's like a little piano chime that tunes you in like, Hey, there's something special here. Uh, And the film does the exact same thing. I might, I, it may have just been so successful that I didn't even consider it. Yeah. I think that's one of those times where like, Um, the music's not making a big deal about itself. Mm -hmm. Like, if you notice it, that's great. But if you don't notice it, it did kind of do its job then. Exactly. Right. Um, any specific thoughts on, like, specific scenes? I I think one thing that tripped me up a lot of times when, when Brendan was talking to Brain was he gave him a lot of tasks that we didn't see happen which made me feel like I was supposed to be keeping track of more than I needed to. Mm. And that kind of, that kind of upset me. Like, like the amount of times they mentioned Dode, but then Dode doesn't show up for a while was actually one of those things where it's like, I guess I'm supposed to remember who this person is and that he's a player, but like how, and I don't know that yet. And it was like, it was a little frustrating in that way. I mean, having the benefit of having seen this film, obviously many times and, Having literally, like, the first time I saw this was in film class in college. So, like, we were kind of meant to dive into it a little bit. Um, You know, they keep tabs on Dode 
uh, just to just to answer your question, not even to like really, but like uh, they keep tabs on Dode because Dode's being used. But they're like, why are they using Dode? So it's like this thing of like obviously he has a connection to Kara, and Kara has a connection to the pin. But why Dode? Why is Dode part of this? Because he's like a hashhead. Why would they go? Why would they do that? And it's like this weird thing of, and eventually it comes back around to like, well, Dode had a relationship with Emily and Emily's like the big connecting fiber to all these different threads. Um, but more importantly, Dode's easy to manipulate. <laughs> like, yeah, there's no, there's no two doubts about it. Like the reason they use Dode is because Dode's easy the same way they use Brad. Because, uh, like, uh, Brendan basically says it out loud on the phone call to Brain, like, right after that fight. He's just like, yeah, Brad's a sap. I downed him on his turf and nobody did anything. Yeah. <laughs> so now anyone that says he's... So now everyone knows he's a sap. Everyone who says he's not a sap has something to gain. So it's like... it's it's It really is like a thing of... um. It's a thing of, like, uh, that constant debate of, well, a movie shouldn't hold your hand, but how much do you kind of, like, lay out really, like, right here for you to see? Right. Cause, um, because if you don't give too... If you don't give enough, then you can frustrate your audience. And they can be like, wait, I still don't understand. You kind of just gotta... You gotta say it out. You gotta just gotta lay it out for me here. Um... And you know there were there were still elements, certain elements in the film that watching this for the I don't even know how manyth time, where I was just like, okay, yeah, that does make sense, or like, um, where it's like I can kind of follow their thought process a little bit more, like in step with them instead of being one step behind. Mm-hmm. But it took me like I don't even know how many viewings of it to get to that point. It's very smart writing, but because it's that smart, you you may have to you you need to look at it closer to to pick it up a hundred percent, which I'm okay with. You know, I'm not a kind of person who gets frustrated to the umpteenth degree about not knowing something in a movie. Right. Any closing remarks on Brick? Anything that you would like to add? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I don't think it would have come across my radar if it hadn't been one of the movies that you in particular love. Um, Although it definitely gives me a better appreciation for genre um, and how to... It really gave me a strong appreciation for uh, finding a very good concept to flip the genre on its head that both amplifies it and gives people an out and a kind of tell um, into it all. Uh, it's not a film I would recommend to just anybody. Uh, I think this is definitely a film that you recommend to people who, who want to kind of engage with that, that meta level of thinking about a, a movie they're watching. Um, I don't think this is something that I would recommend even to people who like contemporary crime movies. Um, just because it is so, so seeped in its own concept. It's incredibly niche. Yes. Um, would you agree with the sentiment that if you were really digging knives out, this is maybe like the next step up in terms of concept? Totally. Okay. Mm-hmm. Totally. 
it may not be, it's not the same tone. It's it's much more grounded and somber in tone, but it still mm-hmm. has those little moments of like, oh yeah, I can tell this was this was made by Ryan Johnson. <laughs> it's very much it's very much proto Knives Out. Yeah. Knives Out is the now I have a very big budget, now I can get all these named actors who can play with nuance and stuff like that, um, at an adult level rather than like a teenage level. Um, not to say that it, the, that brick is not professional and, and well put together, but, no. um, it's almost like, you know, this is, this is what will eventually grow into Knives Out being kind of like that stamp of like, here I am, I'm Ryan Johnson, here's what I do. I think I literally just had this thought while we were comparing the two. I think Brick is the movie you make when you don't have the bun- the budget or maybe even the time to have all the bells and whistles. So you focus really, really, really hard on plot. Yeah. Uh, and then Knives Out is the movie you make when you have the money for the bells and whistles. So you kind of now you have like a, a spoiling of riches of just like, well, now it's going to be much more style-based, but the plot can still be there. It can still... Mm-hmm. It's like the style now complements it to the point where you're not getting bogged down in the plot. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, you did enjoy it. Um, and now we move on to Tarzan. So Tarzan, if you have not seen it, is a movie about a boy who grows up in the jungle. That's it. That's it. Okay. <laughs> no, that's not it. So basically, uh, this man and woman, um, it's unclear if they have the baby on the voyage or if they had a baby and then just went, let's take a voyage. But basically there's this British man and woman, uh, with the baby that it's, that is on a voyage. It's not really made clear where they're going or where they're coming from. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the ship catches fire. There's a terrible shipwreck and they escape and they have to take refuge on an Af- in an African jungle. And simultaneously, you briefly, in a brilliant montage that features one of the songs that absolutely slaps from Phil Collins, um, you see that They there's... all do. Let's just put that aside. <laughs> That's, Every I single thought that, one. That was, the, that was what I was implying. <laughs> I was trying to, at least. <laughs> like, one of the many songs in this, in this movie that slaps. Uh, there's one song that I'm like, meh. Um, every other song is like, I, I was having a dance party. It'd been a while since I'd seen this movie. <laughs> um, but, uh, simultaneously you see this family of gorillas, uh, father and a mother. The father is also the leader of this pack of gorillas. And, uh, you see that they have a newborn, uh, baby gorilla as well. Uh, and then you meet Sabor. The biggest asshole. <laughs> I should say the biggest natural depiction of how asshole nature can be sometimes. Sabor the leopard? Cheetah? Yeah, leopard. leopard. Sabor the leopard who kills the baby gorilla and just probably one of the most despicable actions ever conveyed in a Disney movie. Uh... There's a lot of moments in this movie that get really dark. (laughs) 
Uh, but it's that Disney dark where it's just like heavy implication or a big shadow. Um, or some bodies. As also, Sabor uh, kills Tarzan's parents. Which, you know what? Fair. Um, I did kind of, while I was watching this, wonder out loud. I'm like, so the baby survived? <laughs> they hid the baby. They hid the baby in the chest. The baby didn't cry? <laughs> Clearly Tarzan is immune to many things. <laughs> that was one thing. That was like one of the first things. I was just like, okay, now that I'm older, <laughs> I do have some questions. But, um, so, long story short, the mom, fi- the mom gorilla finds the now orphaned baby child, Tarzan, and takes her back and chooses to raise him as her own, and the dad, Kerchak, the father gorilla, the leader of the pack, is like, fuck that baby. Um, <laughs> he literally, in no uncertain terms, says, take that baby back to die. <laughs> It's just like, damn, all right. <laughs> it, should, it should also be noted that so far, this has only been about eight minutes of the film, all right. set to a Phil Collins song. It's a great mo- it's a great montage. It reminds you how like really good uh Disney is as at uh, economic storytelling. Um how quickly and efficiently and with as little things as possible can we convey these ideas. And Tarzan's great at that. Um So we see, uh, very briefly, Tarzan's childhood, and then another montage ages him up to adulthood, and he's still trying to gain Kerchak's approval when all... And seems to basically do that by killing Sabor, uh, the aforementioned leopard, in the ultimate example of karma fucking sucks. Uh, (laughs) But then, all of a sudden, more people... More people from assumedly Britain uh come no, they say to... they say England. Yeah. They say it many times. Yeah. Um more English people come to the not island, but the jungle, basically. And he meets them. This is the infamous yet yeah, yet yeah, Jane, Tarzan Jane. Uh basically he starts to learn from them, starts to go, Oh, hey, wait, I'm not some abomination. I'm actually like whatever these people are. Um, and obviously it causes some tension between him and Kerchak, between him and his mother, because now it's very, very clear that like, well, I mean, very clearly I'm not part of you guys. And you were trying to convince me of this my entire life. And now I have physical evidence that that's not the case. Um, but through it all, Tarzan's really trying to like walk this line between like, okay, I really want to know about what I actually am, but also, I mean, I am still kind, I was raised by this group of gorillas, so it's like he's caught between two worlds, and then, uh, betrayal, uh, when, Clayton, no, not yet, (laughs) the first betrayal, um, which is when, uh, basically the ship comes back for Jane and company, and they're like, all right, we gotta go, that's your time, it's time's up. And Clayton, the obvious villain of the film, uh, convinces Tarzan that, like, look, if Jane sees gorillas, which is the only reason she came here, she'll stay. Uh, And so Tarzan breaks his word to Kerchak uh, and basically does the one thing Kerchak said to not do. 
and brings them to their gorilla nest. And Kerchak, of course, flips the ever-living fuck out. And (laughs) so there's the classic, like, sag into the third act of, like, the protagonist hits their lowest moment. Uh, And Kala finally takes Tarzan to the home he, like, lived in as a baby, which... I didn't really think too hard about it as a kid, but as an adult, I'm like, really? This is the first time? <laughs> but, you know, it, it's what I mean. I think it was actually, it's actually a sizable distance away from where they end up. You see True. a lot of migration in the early movie of the of the tribe, of the, of the family. Um, and so I think that where they end up in the movie is actually very far away from where they start. True. That would, that would make sense. Um, but basically, Kala's just like, look, this is where you grew up. Yes, you are a human. Because that, I guess, was still kind of up in the air. But, um, she's like, look, whichever path you decide, I'll always love you. I'll always accept you. Tarzan comes out in human clothes and it's very much assumed, like, well, I'ma be a human then, mom. Peace. Uh, and then the second betrayal, Clayton. Who, surprise to no one, was actually a dick. <laughs> Can you please, every time we say Clayton in this episode, put the same sound from the movie of the gunshot in there? <laughs> that Tarzan po- thinks is Clayton. Just in post. <laughs> Clayton! <laughs> Clayton! Clayton! Now, now it's going to be annoying because I know I'm going to do that, but you're saying it over and over and over again. Clayton! <laughs> God damn it. Um, <laughs> yes, so... Clayton uh, does <laughs> he does betray everyone as literally anyone with a brain that's paying attention could have called from the first moment he showed up uh, this being a Disney movie and then you get the classic like there's a big final battle and hanging hooray <laughs> And then, of course, you very much get Tarzan removed from the responsibility of killing a human, uh, and Clayton ends up strangling himself on vines and hanging. And you, where, like, how old were you when you first saw the shadow? Sorry, sorry, because sorry. Because I did not. Sorry, accidental hanging. <laughs> yeah, no, but like, how old were you when you first rewatched the movie and saw that his shadow was swinging there? Because I did not pick it up for all the times I watched it as a kid. Oh, I definitely it saw it I was in the first. My teens. I saw and knew exactly what they were because, like. They s- and that's the difference between a black child and a white child. No, um, <laughs> Trevor, <laughs> I wasn't even going there. <laughs> wasn't even going there. Um, no, I just uh, realized because like they kept showing the vines and then his neck, and I was just like, oh, <laughs> I was like, oh, I know where this is going. And then, uh, well, I think I knew what happened, but I don't, I don't think that I saw the oh, shadow. Oh, yeah. I also just noticed the shadow. Um, But, yeah, accidental hanging uh, by the misunderstood anti-hero Clayton. Uh, <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> and then, of course, Kerchak dies, because of course he did. You, you think we're really gonna have a Disney protagonist with all of their parents? With four, with two sets of parents? No. <laughs> We're going to leave him with one. <laughs> this is how we do things here in the House of Mouse. You get one parent or none. Take it or leave it. <laughs> 
but yeah, so that's base. Oh yeah, and then uh, Jane has this will she won't she moment of whether or not she's gonna stay. She eventually decides to stay in this dangerous environment with, that she does not know at all, and is at constantly at a high risk until she learns basic self defense and survival skills. Uh, otherwise, Tarzan's literally gonna have to have her conjoined to his hip at all times. Um, but yeah. <laughs> that's basically Tarzan. That's my way of like breaking down a movie that I'm very familiar with. It's just so much sass. There's so much sarcasm. I did like the movie. I I, I feel like I need to point that out. There was so much sarcasm in that. <laughs> um, realistically, going back and watching this, I gained a much better, much larger appreciation for the animation. Was the big thing. Oh yeah. Like I actually, this may be a, may have been because I'm at my parents' house and they have nice TVs. This may have been the first time I've watched it ever in HD, mm. and the the contrast between like the the background uh, and the actual animation like was so well put together, and like the waves were so nice, and uh, you know just the the movement of the trees and everything. Like I I really I I really noticed that this time around, and the the CG was not distracting. Like you, Where is their CG? I could have sworn that like uh, the the trees and like especially like the the Tarzan uh sorry Tarzan the Jane chase with like the monkeys and like they go oh, into the yeah, and they yeah, slide yeah, in yeah. the like there was CG and I like I noticed it but it was like just a little subtle oh yeah there's CG and it was not distracting at all and it was all very well like put together um. I noticed, like, I finally, like, really looked at Kerchak, and I, like, looked at his nose, and I, like, noticed every individual line, and it was just, like, this movie's really nice to look at. And again, the, yeah, the backgrounds. Um, I actually, uh, I did a lot of checking just to, like, just to see how well they did with this one um, about, like, the animals they chose to use and where they technically set it. Because it's, you know, if you're talking about gorillas in the jungle, you're talking about Gabon and the Congo and just to see, like, okay, oh, is that animal, like, native to here? Is that animal native to here? And the only one that isn't is the lemurs in the first montage. Everything else, the bamboo, the kind of trees, the the elephants, the, uh, you know, every the baboons, everything is native to that area. And so they definitely did a very good job. Um, and also just historically, like, that's an area that England colonized. So it, it actually makes total sense that this was all, uh, that this all, you know, was actually researched for some authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um... I'll say uh, to to kind of add on to like while we're talking about the animation, just like just how nice and specific the movements of muscles and hands and like obviously oh it's critical to the film yeah it's like really important that you get how the gorillas move and to contrast that with how Tarzan moves, which is similar but not quite the same. Uh, because obviously body dimensions lend to different like habits and to you know different ways that Tarzan would have to do cert- certain things versus how a natural gorilla is gonna do things and um, really just paying attention to details like Sabor is just really nice to look at because you can tell that like they really nailed like this is how a cat 
moves. This is how, like, a leopard, like, has to go about, like, just seeing the shoulder blades shift so drastically as he, like, moves and how the fighting is extremely specific to, like, how a cat has to fight versus, like, how a gorilla, even while fleeing, does kind of fight. And it's just, like, these nice little things of... Um, nothing felt lazy. Nothing felt like, oh, it's a cartoon. Like, no, obviously things are heightened. And let alone, like, let alone it's a cartoon, it's also Tarzan. And so it's like, there was probably a lot that they could have gotten away with. Because it's a story that has existed since the 18, like, 1870s. Um, that is not, and it's not a princess movie. So they probably could have gotten away with a lot. Hmm. Because there's like there's just not like a lot of focus on Tarzan. Like, I was this the first post Renaissance or was this the last Renaissance? Uh, I think it's the last Renaissance. The last round. It it does show. And going back to what we kind of alluded to, because uh, we almost talked about this like right before the recording, extremely meticulous like laying out of the plot structure. Like this is a. More like a couple minutes more, couple minutes less. This is basically a ninety-minute movie that is perfectly structured. It's like, like you said, the opening montage gets a lot done really quickly. They don't waste a single beat. Um, there's no parts in that beginning that you don't need to either endear the characters to the audience or to move the plot along or to set up things that come back later. Or things like that, but it never feels like, you know, they're just ticking boxes. It feels like a natural story, but you get completely done with the first act in like 20 minutes. And it's just like, Jesus. <laughs> I checked. Yeah, by the time you get to Phil Collins saying, Son of Man, you're you're in the movie. Yeah, like, all right, here we go. This, this is it. You're done. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, I will say, um, there was like one, and I alluded to this earlier, there's one song, there's one part of the whole movie that was just like, okay, it kind of feels a little indulgent, kind of feels a little bit like filler, and I feel like it's obvious which one that is. I mean, yeah, come on. The it's it's the it's I think I think this this podcast will now forever call those filler songs the Olaf songs. The Olaf um, songs. <laughs> it's it's the Olaf song. And also like you have an excuse to get Phil Collins and InSync together, of course you do it. In in 1998, I legitimately this came out. I legitimately was just thinking I'm like, well, at least it got, you know, Phil Collins and InSync to make that awesome remix. <laughs> Right, exactly. With, like, Rosie O'Donnell. What is more 1999 than NSYNC, Phil Collins, and Rosie O'Donnell in a song together? Oh, my God. <laughs> Never more than in A League of Their Own have I absolutely adored Rosie O'Donnell. Like, like A League of Their Own makes me... Ten more minutes? Five more minutes? One more minute. One more minute. <laughs> <laughs> Like, A League of Their Own really made me sit up for the first time and go, I actually love Rosie O'Donnell. 
It's n- I've never had the thought before, <laughs> other than in Tarzan. When you watch Turk, it's just like, God, you're just so good at this, aren't you? <laughs> you're- also, I just I just want to acknowledge that the elephants are white people. Um, <laughs> no, everyone is white people. What are you talking about? There's well, yeah, there's a not a single person, person, of, color person of color in the cast in this movie that takes place in Africa. But, like, stereotypically, the way they behave, they are oh, the yeah. white people. Well, I mean, Wayne Knight is Wayne Knight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, also, just like the honey, mommy, honey's, lo- or honey, mommy's losing her patience. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're actually native to South America. They no, are, they are the white South people. Oh, man. And then they freak out when when someone presents them with uh, vague information. They're the white people. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> they proceed to stampede and destroy the gorillas' uh, habitat. Wow. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, you know, Glenn Close plays his mom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. I, I I did take a look at this. I was like, wait, Kerchak's got to be like Michael Clark Duncan or something. It's like, nope. No. It's a white guy. I am going to possibly get heat for this, but I the second even after all these years, the second Kala opens her mouth, I'm like, no, nah, no. If you don't I think don't. about it. No, it's like I mean also hold hold I on. Knew- How much shit would they have got in if they cast if they cast black people as gorillas? The thing about it is that it's like, look, you're gonna be damned if you do, damned if you don't, because it's a movie that takes place in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> like Well, I mean that de- that definitely gets to one of the points that I wanted to kind of make about Tarzan, which which separates this from most other Tarzan lore, is that like Tarzan is a really fucked up origin back in the 1800s like the the origins of tarzan are so much worse than what you would assume not just the whole white man in africa is superman like narrative it really uh you know edgar rice burroughs is the original author of of the tarzan books and they're these tiny little novellas and he wrote like 76 of them and they are all about this white Englishman who is of noble birth, who gets raised by apes and then proceeds to dominate and kill all sorts of shit. He kills gorillas, he kills uh, leopards, he kills black people, black poachers that he sees as a threat. And it is all glorified in this kind of Teddy Roosevelt-esque masculinity superior like white superiority colonist mindset in the original tarzan tarzan was such an image that was replicated through all of this merchandising and propaganda at the time to basically uphold this fit white person and thus if you follow the chain of history like the way the united states reacted to post-civil war uh progressivism and and separating black communities out and then that inspired nazi germany with the jim crow laws inspiring nazi germany's nuremberg laws like tarzan is is a small peg in a large white supremacist uh story and that's why even this disney version still doesn't do enough self-awareness in that role where it makes him into a good person simply by the nature of him having experienced being an outcast. Um, 
And, but it still definitely props up this whole, like, man, man superiority over the elements and this, this, you know, idealism of, of human form that, that I think is very subtle. Um, but it still doesn't, in my opinion, from a contemporary lens, do enough to kind of surpass that. Right. Um, I do want to, I do want to point out though, like, yeah, my objection to, Glenn Close at like it's it's like I already knew I knew from before I even put the movie on like I know that I knew that Glenn Close Close was uh Kala but it really was just like the second that she started unlike my I guess like fifth or something like that time seeing the movie I was just like I can tell that's not what like that's not what I assume would come out of this, like, giant gorilla is Glenn Close. Even if it's not, like, a non-white actress. It's like, there's just something about it being Glenn Close where I'm just like, really? <laughs> I was just like, all right. But I, it's like, I don't have the same issue with uh, Rosie. Rosie, like, adds so much to Turk. Yeah. So it's like, it is kind of case to case, but here it is a thing of like, you kind of let it go. You kind of like, you have the thought of like, I feel like there should be black people involved in this movie set in Africa. And then you kind of like go, all right, but anyway. Uh, And that anyway leads really nicely into the big white pasty elephant in the room that made a bunch of songs that fucking slap that a bunch of people fucking hate on for no reason, which is Phil Collins. Yes. The, the, if we're going to talk about, uh, you know, in brick, the noir score doing its job, Phil Collins does his job so well in this. And like, when you think about the origins of why they asked Phil Collins to do this, it has a lot to do with that kind of pulsing jungle beat. Yeah, um, and he's, you know, one of the most famous percussionists, you know, in the contemporary, you know, canon. And so they asked him to do this. And then, you know, and then he puts on these like really the, the, the lyrics are a little bit leading at times. They're there, especially when there's no dialogue. The the lyrics definitely lead you down the emotional path. Um, and he also just puts so much into every single moment of all of those. Um, it's so uplifting and tragic in so many different points. It's one of, you know, I can listen to those songs on their own and still like feel good about it. I don't feel weird about listening to that, that, that album. Um, and he also, he scored the rest of it too. You know, it's not just the songs that he sings. He scored even all the, the fight scenes and all that stuff. Like he, he did the entire score for that movie and, and then I think did more for the Broadway adaptation. Um, Oh, I'm sure he for the did. stage adaptation, and so and so, there's just so much that that movie owes to Phil Collins. I'm trying to think of that movie without that aspect to it, and it's such like uh, if you were to say this to people who it's like, oh hey, here's this story about a man from the jungle. Here's this guy from Genesis, and to tell them that they came <laughs> together into the animated version of it and it makes it great would probably confuse that person. But you can't really separate this movie without Phil Collins' contribution to it. Um, uh, like arguably the big biggest artistic contribution other than the animation to it like you know you you really can't speak to these actors being replaced by other actors and it would it change it beyond maybe rosie o'donnell um rosie you know, and wayne 
and well and also mini driver i think mini driver oh my god yes Like, like, let's be honest, there's a large part of me that even though I'm not a fit person um, and I don't see myself as like this sort of like, you know, exquisite male uh, specimen, um, you know, there is something in, I think, in every guy um, who who grows up on this movie that that looks at Jane and goes, ah, yeah, that's 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 the kind of like woman. That's the kind of woman I I want. Um, (laughs) Fuck you. Don't don't judge me. Just She's a lovely up. British woman. Just the lead up. I was just like, I can only imagine where this is going. <laughs> I may not be a man of, you know, particular physique. And I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, like, I'm I just think a, a 28 year old man doing his best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of people pigeonhole it where it's like similar to the George of the Jungle situation because uh, oh, Brendan Fraser was uh, was incredibly fit. And, and that story is a little bit different in that he goes back to Brendan, like George of the Jungle is the comedy version of the original Tarzan. Yeah, um, it's the know, stories from the 1800s. It's the parody of it. Um, but it also speaks a lot to the female gaze where it's like, yes, he's, you know, he's kind of dumb, but he's also sweet and caring and strong and physically fit. He's physically fit in the same way that the ideal for, you know, many men is, is that physical fitness um, from the female gaze. And so a lot of people pigeonhole Jane into being attracted just to his physicality, which I think is definitely an, a catalyst. But I think that what attracts Jane more to him is, is the fact that he is like the, it's almost like the teacher student relationship, which is going to make this sound kinkier than it needs to be. Um, well, they both, they're both I think teachers. She's, yeah. I think they're both attracted to each other in the way that they expose each other's worlds to one another. And they can kind of foster that relationship as two people who are just genuinely caring people. I do wonder what kind of a story it would be if somebody from Jane's time period encountered a black man who was raised in the jungle by apes. I think that's a factor worth noting. Is, but, is Jane the same Jane? Yeah. Doesn't matter. Because I don't know. Cause she's, she's, she definitely is very, is more sheltered towards the beginning. Well, my thing is that like, I, identified very early in rewatching this film uh, that was just like uh, one of Tarzan's biggest, absolute biggest characteristics that doesn't really get a lot of like spotlight. But when you watch the movie and you pay attention, you're like, oh yeah, that is like basically his number one defining trait is his curiosity. Tarzan mm-hmm. is like naturally like one of Even the- as a baby. Yeah, he's extremely curious. He doesn't like... He doesn't immediately scream when a gorilla looks at him, like... Right. The moment of, uh? Uh? (laughs) There's a lot of, like, active, you know, like, you know, see something new, don't back away, but, like, go towards it. And, like, Mm -hmm. really just enthralled about anything that can surprise him. And I think, ultimately, that's the main thing that puts Tarzan and Jane together. Because they're both curious. They're both, like, there's no, I don't think it's at all a coincidence that Jane in this movie is not just along for the ride. Jane's a very capable scientist. Like, Mm -hmm. she's part of that. And I think ultimately that is the main thing of, like, why, uh, I mean, yeah, obviously outside of the fact that Tarzan's attractive, that, you know, I think after she gets over her initial shock at everything after the monkey scene, there the thing that hooks her on this dude 
is the fact that she's wondering what the hell she's looking at. She's like, she immediately goes into scientist mode and is just like, what are you? Like, okay, so, wait, oh, we're doing language now. Okay, yeah, no, Jane and Tarzan and like, wait, what are you, what are you doing with my glove? And like, what are you doing with my hand? And like, oh, he was raised by a gorilla. Like, I think that's the main, th- that's why, you know, that scene where she draws Tarzan, she never really starts getting there until she starts drawing the eyes. And she starts talking about, like, he's so, like, you know, curious and, like, inquisitive and, you know, all this. I mean, she's talking about his eyes and how intense they are. And that's the moment where I think the kind of subliminal, like, subconscious click is of, like, and that's, you know, that warrants the response from her dad of, like, should I, like, leave you in the drawing alone, dear? (laughs) because you're kind of uh, making this a little uncomfortable for your old man. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it's really good dating advice compared to a lot of other Disney movies. And it's like, hey, you want to know a key to a really interesting relationship is mutual curiosity. Yeah, that's I think that's really the secret ingredient of why I never once rolled my eyes at this relationship. Like, I think there are times where. You know, you can kind of roll your eyes at Aladdin and Jasmine at some at like a point or two and you can kind of, you know, you can get uh, Beauty and the Beast at certain points too. It's one of the few Disney relationships where the woman doesn't roll her eyes at the guy and go, "Oh, he's intolerable, but I love him." Uh, yeah. It's like you can tell yeah, they, that never happens. They both support each other and they're both concerned about what the other wants. They're concerned about the others, like, you know, uh, how they're going to turn out uh, instead of just like, you know, but daddy, I love him. Um, <laughs> God. But I mean, yeah, this is probably one of the better Disney romances as a whole. And Jane is easily one of the best Disney characters just in general let alone one of the best female characters because she's so active and she has such a full range of emotion and Minnie Driver adds so much to her character like just I can't I have to wonder how much she improvised I I am curious and I on it's it's just like Rosie and Wayne where it's just like I don't want anybody else but voicing Jane it has mm-hmm. to be Minnie Driver because like literally, literally, when the li- when the little chimp took took the drawing and she was trying to get it back, she was like one, two, th-. and she's like, "Oh look, bananas, bananas!" <laughs> I was just like, "Please marry me, run away with me, please!" <laughs> like yes, um. It's also no coincidence that, like, one of the most personal movies to me is Goodwill Hunting, which also has Minnie Driver. <laughs> Minnie Driver is just very underrated. She's, she should be used much more. All right, I think that wraps it on uh, Tarzan. Good animation, good songs, of course. Um, very good select performances by Rosie O'Donnell, Wayne Knight, Minnie Driver, of course. Um, everyone else is kind of, uh, yeah, they're, they're good. They're, they're okay. They're there. 
Um, and then Brick, I think the main thing to come away from is that it's a little heady. It's not for everyone. Um, it has its own tone that it really digs. It, it's a good tone that fits it. Um, you know, it's a little rough around the edges on purpose in terms of cinematography, maybe some editing, um, and the acting, of course. But overall, another enjoyable movie. Uh, if you can follow it, uh, it always keeps you guessing. Uh, and a nice homage to a different time and a different genre, but updating it and putting a little bit of a twist on it that uh, Ryan Johnson does love to do. Um, but with all that said, that does actually kind of transition pretty neatly into our closing statements, our closing remarks, that being the phenomenon of casual viewers versus critics. Because we did talk about two drastically different movies here in terms of, um, I think, polish, in terms of audience, in terms of execution and approach, uh, obviously tone and genre. And, you know, I think in both movies, we were able to talk about what made them great and also very much objectively acknowledge what they may have struggled in a little bit or what they could have done maybe a little bit better in or just our overall thoughts. But, you know, there are people that are paid to do this for a living, that study film, that are professionals, and those are called movie critics. And for some reason, there's just this thing about movie critics where the general audience is like, Somebody, I, how many times have you basically heard this paraphrased exchange of just like, oh, I was really interested in this movie. Oh, I think it's got like a 73 or something on Rotten Tomatoes. I heard it's not really that great. Well, yeah, but that's just the critics. Makes no sense. I, I, I don't understand. I don't understand this phenomenon of like. Well, these professional people that study movies say that the movie is not awful, not terrible, but not great. And then people go, ah, but that's just the critics, though. What do they know? What? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, nobody does that with almost any other thing that I can think of. Like, if a food critic goes to a restaurant and says, yeah, the restaurant's all right. It's nothing great, but it's all right. Nobody goes, nah, that's just the critic. He doesn't know what he's talking about. They go, yeah, the restaurant's probably just great. I mean, uh, the restaurant's probably just good. It's probably just all right. And they just, they still go there and enjoy their food. Like, this is such a weird, weird thing for film specifically. Uh, and I may be wrong. There may be other uh, mediums in which this is also a thing. Pro yeah, probably theater can also share this. I mean, I can attest to, to my perspective on theater criticism because I think that there is an aspect of marketing and an aspect of, uh, you know, kind of industry perpetuation um, in which critics are actually not supposed to be on the side of the artists in a way. Um, they are on the side of the artist in that critics don't walk into things going, oh, I hope this is bad so I can write about it. P critics go in wanting to enjoy things because critics are supposed to be your first line of defense in wasting your time on bad art. 
That is what they are supposed to do. Now, in terms of like art criticism, like visual art, all that's bullshit. Uh, like, you know, watch Adam ruins everything on art because art in terms of visual art, everything about that criticism and who rich people prop up as artists that get appreciated work and analyzed is actually all total bullshit. Um, it's all arbitrary. It is all elitist. You get farther away from that when it comes to theater and film criticism, because those can actually pick apart specific things about the film that can actually really just offset an audience and that the audience can actually understand and get behind why it is XYZ way. Now, I feel that in both industries over the past, you know, over the past 20 years, it has become less about, especially in theater criticism, less about talking about the art in and of itself and almost in a, in a way they, that th- critics have surrendered to, well, art is subjective, so no one's going to listen to me. Um, in that it just becomes a matter of, okay, here's kind of what this show is about. And if you like this kind of thing, then, then, you know, then go see it. Or, you know, it's really, there's so many reviews for theater, at least, where it literally is just a summary of the show. And I, it frustrates me so much because you can't, you can't find anything to talk about. It was it really that little of merit to you to warrant a conversation about the world we're in and those kinds of things. Um, Critics are supposed to protect the public from a waste on the, a waste of their time. And when they don't do that, then, or when the public has lost faith in them, then they don't need to exist. Um, and we see, you know, replications of, of things that we might not need. Yeah. Like, um, just kind of continuing that point. Cause I have another point, but to continue on the literal last thing you said of just like, Certain without critics, certain things just kind of continue to get done, even if it might be not great, because people now have lost faith in critics. Um, the Transformer series is not good. <laughs> it's not. It's not good. But I think it's really interesting that it's probably the biggest example, like the most mainstream example of. The movie that's like, well, this isn't supposed to be, you know, for critics. It's not going to win any Oscars. And I'm like, I can literally prove that wrong with the Transformers movies. Because the first Transformers movie is not bad. Like, it's not terrible. It has a cohesive, like, narrative. And it has characters that make sense. For the story and like the plot structure makes sense and every again everything just makes sense and that's like the whole point and it's like the further you go along because people have lost faith in like genuine criticism of a thing because quote it's not like it's gonna win any Oscars it gets further and further and further and further away from even trying to be like objectively good because there's just now this ingrained mindset of like well it's not gonna win any oscars but that doesn't mean it can't be good yeah but it can not be up for any oscars and still be good but you still have to do certain things objectively well in order for the subjective enjoyment to actually matter because there are people that unironically like the room 
does not mean The Room is a good movie. Right. <laughs> the Room is barely a movie. True, exactly. <laughs> the The Room is like, The Room is a living meme. That's what The Room <laughs> is. Yeah. So it's not like any critic would dare tell you that you can't enjoy The Room. I'm sure most critics in a very cynical, like, let's grab a pint of ice cream and turn and just turn our brain offs and laugh at how this, how awful this thing is. Like, I'm sure critics do like the room in a perverse way, but they would never say the room is good. And that's the difference. But that's like, this is the, the key thing that people don't seem to get is that, when a critic says that a movie is bad, it doesn't mean that you can't like it. But it does mean that the movie is bad. Like, <laughs> you can just like a bad movie. Probably one of the best examples of recent memory is Suicide Squad. An objectively, objectively bad movie. With every aspect flawed horribly flawed deeply flawed it's a terrible awful train wreck of a movie in so many areas of filmmaking and yet like one of my enduring memories of just the phenomenon of suicide squad is angry joe on youtube going on his youtube channel and reviewing quote unquote the movie and saying I don't know what the critics are talking. I don't know what the critics are talking about. That movie was fucking good. And I'm like, unless you actually know about anything to do with film, you can't say the movie is good, but you can say that you enjoyed it. And I don't know why it doesn't end there. Cause it should, it should just end with, I guess the critics say that the movie is bad. I don't really know the difference, but personally, I liked it. If it was just that, <laughs> there would be no issue. But it's weirdly now become this line in the sand thing of like, you're either with the critics or you're with us. And I'm just like, we all like movies, bruh. They're just movies. So do you think it's a, a reaction of anti-PC culture? Or like that's what, definitely a part of it. Well, like, like, what is the cause of this? Because, because for me, the cause of bad criticism comes from a buy-in by critics to not really delve into material. That that is my relationship with criticism, where it's like, well, we're not really, you know. And, and given the critic has a, a terrible job, where the critic holds people's careers and people's livelihoods in their hands. It's the same thing with restaurants. Like, you know, they they don't want to write the bad review per se um, because it's going to cost people a lot of money and a lot of livelihood. And it might cost a performer their job forever. Um, it's a huge thing. And so but but part of my problem with criticism is when it's lackluster. And so for me, that is a is a product of the marketing money complex where it's it's putting the money before the art. Um it's putting the, well, my friend's going to lose money on this, so I'm just going to give it a decent review. Um, 
And so, like, it's almost like those two factors come together where it's like critics don't want backlash from the public who uh, claims they're being elitist, but they also don't want backlash for all the people that they share an industry with who need that livelihood and need people to go keep seeing their art. Like, I can sum up the answer to your question in one word, but I will say that uh, you said that your thing with criticism was... um, Shit, I already forgot. Uh, what, what was it? subpar? Yeah, lackluster or lackluster. Your issue with criticism is lackluster criticism. My issue is vague criticism. Yes, and that or, that to me it falls under kind of the same umbrella. Yeah, and so like we're kind of we're like side by side with each other on like, and the the issue I think goes back to one word clickbait yeah and that kind of changes so many aspects of this big wide wild west world of just talking about movies not being a film critic because now we have to kind of open this up a little bit because now most people don't actually read film criticism they don't watch roger and ebert because you know like you you physically can't but but like what you do watch is people like angry joe people like the nostalgia critic people like chris stuckman people like uh flick reviews and uh jeremy johns and uh all these other like you know people that review films on youtube so now it's turned from this thing of, you know, genuinely looking into a film and finding things to talk about and talking about the lighting and the cinematography and, you know, the plot structure and how well written was it and, you know, very specific details on what you liked and disliked. Now it's just trying to get attention. Now it's just, you know... And there's two ways to go about it. There's two ways to go about getting attention. One is hot takes, which are just swell. And the second thing is, I'm going to sum up the film for you so you don't have to bother. And both of those things suck when they're just done for the sake of doing it. Like, this is where you get into the cinema sins, the bane of my fucking existence. This is where you get into the, you know, X amount of plot holes you never knew were in your favorite movies. Uh. And it's just like, but what does it matter? Because here's the thing. If there's a huge gaping plot hole in... The bat and uh, the Dark Knight Rises. Does it matter? Does it? D- does it? Does it matter if there's a big ass gaping plot hole in the Dark Knight Rises? Because people will be like, "How did Bruce Wayne get back to Gotham? That's a plot hole. How could he possibly have gotten back in time?" Well, if it doesn't matter to the plot, then why does it matter? to you and it's just this 
thing of like you're just saying these things to get attention because now you're losing your audience to people who are bright and colorful and have a hundred thousand plus subscribers on youtube instead of like genuinely you know and it's some of the onus is on the audience as well because the audience has flocked over and it's like, I can maybe count on one hand all the people I know that would be genuinely interested in a actual breakdown of a movie and, like, what cinematography means and, you know, what does it mean when the camera does this as opposed to this or what does good plot structure look like or what's the difference between a well-written and non-well-written character and how can you tell the difference sometimes and some of these things are objective. Some of these, th- these things have subjective leanings and some are completely subjective. But here's the thing. Critics are at least trying to do the hard work that goes into all that. But, I mean, and none of this is to say that there aren't genuine critics out there because I'm sure there are. I don't personally know any and I myself don't look to critics. But... I'm one of the more rarer audience members that instead of looking to critics, I just want to learn more about film myself to become my own critic. And I think the casual audience member doesn't really have the time, the patience, or the interest to do that. But then they simultaneously discredit the people that do have the time and the patience and the interest to do that. And they lessen their importance... By saying, like, ah, it's just the critics. Critics don't know anything. Critics hate movies. That's why they dedicated a big-ass chunk of their life to watching them constantly. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, I think to wrap, I think to just to sum up, first off, do you have anything more on, uh, on your mind? No, I think that that's a really, you know, astute way of kind of picking apart where it's like, it's a combination of of the the culture shift in how we consume uh you know talking about other media and and just the the well why should i bother if this is what it's going to be um is has kind of contributed to the climate that we that we find ourselves in yeah i think bottom line you know a critic is not here to tell you whether or not you're smart or dumb for liking a movie. Mm-hmm. That's not their job. Their job, part of their job, like you said, is to be the last line of defense to tell you to not waste your time or to, you know, if you're interested in this, then go ahead and check it out. Um, but part of the critic's job is to educate. So this idea that you know critics are in it for themselves they don't care like that they don't just they just don't know enough you're saying that from a place of ignorance and until you take the time to actually understand okay what do i need to understand about film to actually like really participate in this conversation until you take those steps you can't really say anything because well, you can you the- can but it's 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 a uh... It's a, you know, it's you, you can say whether or not you like something or what off put you. You don't need to have a master's in film well, yeah. to do that. But I'm, I'm saying you can't directly contradict a critic if you don't really 
know what you're talking about. Like for people that say that Suicide Squad had bad editing and they go like, what are you talking about? The editing was fine. Well, what do you have to back that up? Because like there are people that are professional editors that say it's bad or that have at least studied film editing to know that it's bad. And you're just going to, from your house in Milwaukee, just go like, no, you're, you're wrong. That's just, no, that's not how that works. (laughs) In summation, it's Trump's fault. In summation. (laughs) Thanks, Trump. No, no, uh, there's there's no thanks Obama for Donald that. Trump. We do we he doesn't get to be thanked for anything. Right. I was like, we shouldn't even joke about that, guys. He'll just be like I uh, it's fine. They love no, what I'm doing. The gays, they love what I'm doing. Jesus. As we record in Pride Month. <laughs> He's literally that's a quote. He said that. Oh god. I can't. Okay. Before we delve down into that rabbit hole. <laughs> Um, there's more that could be said. There's more that we may touch on later on, but that's the big, you know, uh, the big clincher of this episode, uh, is that, you know, maybe learn a little bit more about film, maybe find a specific film critic or film reviewer or film YouTuber or anything that just speaks to you because even critics themselves within their own field, they disagree constantly. It's like anything, you know, like most art, it is subjective, but unlike some other forms of art, as Trevor did point out, you know, there are aspects of film as well as theater that are just objective. There are things that you have to get right. And if you don't, that's an objective fault. You can't just ignore it. And pointing out those flaws doesn't attack you, the audience. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person for liking The Room or Suicide Squad or Batman versus Superman. Yeah, uh, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I knew you were gonna. <laughs> just the, like just the the sheer fact that fans willed the Snyder cut into existence. Still boggles my mind. Oh, uh, yeah, that is a thing that's going to happen now, huh? <laughs> God. But, you know, it's... And honestly, it's fine if you go into those types of films looking and digging for the positivity. That's Agreed. fine. Okay. All right. That's absolutely fine if you're, one, if you're like, uh, Cinema Wins on YouTube, who I actually subscribe to and watch his videos. Like... It's absolutely fine if you want to willingly watch a film that has been criticized and find the good. Great. Fine. But it <laughs> doesn't stop the fact that it did get certain things wrong. And that's fine. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> Everyone will be okay. The Last Jedi was not the worst movie ever made. Please don't. <laughs> Don't even, don't even. How could you do that to Luke Skywalker? I identified with him and then he had a flaw. I just, I hear people say things like, it's the worst movie ever made. And I go, the last airbender exists. (laughs) 
Also, Birdemic exists. Which, thankfully, I have not seen up to this point. <laughs> I have seen. I've seen Troll 2. I have seen. I cannot unseen. <laughs> have you seen Troll 2? What's the one where the tire gets possessed? What? <laughs> the, there's a there's one where a tire gets possessed by a demon. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's called Rubber or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but have you seen Troll 2? No. Okay. Wasn't there not I a think, troll one? Oh god. I don't know. I forget the history. It's one of those like it's like the room. There's like a whole backstory. Um, I feel like we've weirdly opened ourselves up to a possible <laughs> a possible uh shit movie episode. Yeah. <laughs> so let's wrap now before we make this worse on ourselves. Um <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and also because we've been recording a very long time. Uh, so we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Red Team Podcast. Uh, if you want to reach us and ask any questions or just say hey or to talk about film maybe some more, uh, feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Team Pod. I, of course, have been TJ and... I am the ghost of Trevor Catalano. <laughs> Phil Collins has caused me to leave my body. Please, someone guide me back. Here, follow these sick beats. Do, 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 do. Son of a man. I want to know. Can you show me? I want to know about these strangers like me. And on that note, and on those notes. Tell me more. We bid you adieu. Until the next episode of the so Red Team Podcast. Like me. So long, everybody. Good night. Love you. Mwah!